Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Bowel, Bladder, and Sexual Dysfunction in TM, NMOSD, and ADEM. I'm Roberta Pesce from the TMA. Uh, we are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. We are very pleased to be joined by Sam Huge of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, TM NNMOSD program, who will be moderating our podcast today. Just a few housekeeping pieces before we start. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. And during the call, if you have any additional questions, please send them to us via our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myelitis, or you can also send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Thanks, Roberta. The 2015 TMA Ask the Expert podcast series is made possible in part through the generous support of Chagai Pharmaceutical Company, Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Chagai Pharmaceutical Company is conducting clinical studies to create original and innovative drugs, both in the United States and overseas, to address unmet medical needs and neurological for the level of pharmaceutical contribution and satisfaction concerning patient treatment remains low. Alexian Pharmaceuticals is a global biopharmaceutical company rare disorders to the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and is driven by the knowledge that people's lives depend on their work. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Philippines Kabahug and Paula Hardiman. Dr. Philippines Kabahug completed a fellowship in spinal cord injury medicine at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in 2013. Presently, she practices at the International Center for Spinal Cord Injury at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. She's the director of the musculoskeletal ultrasound at KKI and runs two clinics, a musculoskeletal diagnostic clinic and an ultrasound-guided intrathecal pump access clinic. Paula Hardiman is a physician assistant in the neuroimmunology program at UT Southwestern Medical Center Dallas, Texas. She's involved in the evaluation and treatment of patients with demyelinating disorders and also develops and coordinates various research projects along with health and wellness programs. And just a disclaimer to everybody listening today, uh, this is, uh, this podcast topic could include some sensitive information and sensitive conversation, so just keep that in mind as you listen through uh, as we discuss uh, these issues. And before we move into the questions, I wanted to throw it over to Dr. Kabahug and Paula um, to just kind of give us an overview as to why bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction occurs in these disorders, in transverse myelitis, uh, neuromyelitis optica, and uh, ADEM. Uh, Dr. Kabahug, would you like to, to lead the charge in, in the overview? Well, yes, Sam, thank you. Um, so good afternoon, everyone. So. Whenever you have any injury or insult or disease that affects your spinal cord, what can and usually happens is that your bowel and your bladder function is going to be affected. So basically, um, I'm not sure if you remember from you know biology or high your high school classes that in our body we have two types of autonomic nervous systems which I'd like to say is responsible for the autopilot or automatic control of our body. We have the sympathetic or fight or flight system. So that gets activated when we're all excited. Um, and then there's the parasympathetic or what I'd like to call the rest and digest, which takes care of all of um, these functions. Now, normally there's a balance um, in all of the tracks that serve the both systems, your sympathetic and your parasympathetic system, they go up and down your spinal cord. So basically anything that interferes or interrupts the tracks that serves these two symptoms, uh, systems, sorry, systems can result in um, abnormalities or dysfunction of your bowel and bladder function. Now your bowel and your, basically the function of your the bowel and bladder basically it's to store uh, and then when, when after storage of, let's say, your feces or your bladder in the urine, storage of urine in your bladder or feces in the large intestine, when it's time for you 
to relieve yourself, then you have the proper defecation or urination. And aside from being an automatic pilot, there is a coordination between the brain and the spinal cord. So it's a whole lot of interconnections. And whenever you have any disease that affects these connections between the brain and the spinal cord, such as TM, multiple sclerosis, NMO, ADEM, then you would have problems with bowel and bladder function. Paula, do you want to add anything else? Uh, no, that sounds, you, you hit it spot on perfect. Um, that's a really good description of what's going on in the body. But, um, I know uh, uh, from speaking with, with patients and, and kind of observing things, uh, it's not just because there's some kind of insult to the spinal cord doesn't mean that everybody who has it is going to have exactly the same problems. It can vary um, uh, in terms of severity or even partial um, um, issues. Uh, uh, is there um, kind of an explanation from your end as to um, why it's not one size fits all? Uh, yes, that's very true. Um, like in real estate, location, 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 it's, that's the cliche. It's the same thing in this, uh, when you have an, an insult or disease to your central nervous system. Uh, location in terms of which tracts are affected is very important. Now, in general, when, when we, we have, like all things in medicine, people, we like to classify things, like to put things in different boxes, right? So in general, patients can have what we call a flaccid bladder or bowel, and we have a spastic bladder or bowel. Uh, the way I'd like to think of it is when you've had an injury that is high enough in your spinal cord or it can affect your, uh, your brain, for example, most of the time these patients end up with what, I, what we call the spastic bowel or bladder. Um, this is, these are the patients that have a lot of spasticity or leg spasms. Um, they tend to um, have problems not just with retention but trying to release either your, your feces or your um, uh, urine. Now with a flaccid bladder or bowel, these are, the pa these are the patients that mostly have problems or the insult in their spinal cord is at the lower levels of their spinal cord, at the lower most levels, at the sacral levels or their nerve root levels. So it's not, a, it's a problem uh, not of storage but actually of, tr uh, of, of trying to push the, uh, the feces or trying to urinate. Basically you retain. Uh, you retain your, your feces or, your, or there's a problem with urinary retention. And, and the problem is that you can't, um, do not have control um, when you defecate or um, when you urinate. Yeah, I, I agree. I use the same, um, you know, statement when I talk to patients about why some patients can have this symptom and some others. Um, so you're absolutely correct. It's real estate, real estate, real estate. I'll even use the analogy of thinking of a, a major highway system. And so if the um, two most inner lanes are blocked, it's going to affect traffic this way. But if the two uh, most outer lanes are blocked, it's going to affect traffic a different way. And so just to help with, especially with spinal cord, it, it all depends on what track may get in, involved. Um, you can have a person who could have, both patients could be transverse myelitis, but one is going to have bladder issues and one is not. It's just all dependent upon um, which tract is, gets involved. So it can be a very complicated system down there uh, uh, to make things work or not work as the case may be. Um, jumping into some of the questions, uh, there was a, a number of questions that came in um, uh, kind of talking about most, most people who have bowel or bladder dysfunction are on a, a multitude of different kind of medications, prescriptions to, to handle it, kind of go through med after med to see what works. Um, and then a lot of other medications that are, that are utilized for other symptoms that could be a part of these diseases can lead to uh, um, increased retention or constipation or, or things of that nature. And so um, from your, um, Dr. Kabalhug and, and Paula, from your clinical experience, how do you kind of manage uh, kind of the, the multiple prescriptions uh, and, and um, go through 
not only those drugs that are supposed to help the bowel and bladder, but also manage the side effects of the other meds that they're taking. Um, okay, so Sam, this is uh, going to be a lengthy discussion. So uh, remember when we um, uh, for uh, earlier we talked about the, the basically the main classifications of bowel and bladder if you're spastic or flaccid. I usually start from there because uh, a spastic bladder would have a certain pattern of dysfunction versus a flaccid bladder. Um, and then from then, we have to tailor um, the type of medications and the bowel and bladder program which would be best suited for a patient. So this, I'm just going to be talking in general. Let's, let's start with um, the spastic bladder or spastic bowel. Uh, and before I start, let me just preface that whenever you have an injury to the spinal cord in terms of, of the bowel, everything slows down. Uh, so there's always going to be a component of having constipation. Okay, so let me start with the spastic bladder first. Um, spastic bladder, these are the hyperactive bladder. And usually a lot of patients with a spastic bladder, they would complain of of increased urgency, frequency, if they do have the bladder sensation. Or some patients, if they're doing their catheterization program, some of them would have a lot of leaking in between catheterizations. Um, so in that case, when we have a hyperactive bladder, we want to make sure that, number one, they're being catheterized regularly and properly and there are different types of catheters being used. Um, I personally um, would recommend not, you know, to, to let me rephrase that, I would recommend catheterizing at least every four hours. Um, and this is just a general rule. Again, it is different for each person depending on, on what type of bladder they have. Um, make sure they have adequate fluid intake. And then we, we practitioners, we we order a specific tests in order to further tease out what type of what type of spastic bladder that do they have. Um, I'd like to imagine the bladder as this really powerful balloon. The walls of the bladder are thin but powerful muscles, and what they do is when it's time to store urine, they will stretch and store the urine, and then when it's time to and it's time to urinate, it's going to contract powerfully to push the urine out. In spinal cord, in anything that you injure the spinal cord, that coordination is lost. And, and this is where we institute adequate fluid intake and output, the use of catheterization, and the use of appropriate medications that will help um, relax the bladder or, or relax the, the sphincter of the bladder. Um, now, it's very important that the patients have a good working relationship with whoever is taking care of their bowels and their bladder, and we'll get to the bowels in a bit, uh, because not a, you know, not a lot of practitioners are comfortable with handling a neurogenic bladder. Um, they should always also discuss that sometimes things are not set in stone, what may be the bladder program, the catheterization program, what, what may be working now for this year might be different next year because people change over time and bladders do change over time. So there needs to be a constant reevaluation at least every year. As a practitioner, we would order specific lab tests, um, a renal ultrasound, a perfusion scan, a urodynamic study at least every two years if it's needed, if you have that um, type of spastic bladder. And then your physicians or your practitioners, we always go through the medications to make sure they're the proper dosage and appropriate. We also discuss potential side effects because a lot of the medications that we use for the bladder, for example, uh, the most frequent side effects and the most distressing side effects, at least in my population, people I see are the dry mouth and the constipation. All right, sorry, Paula, I've been talking a lot. So no, you're, you're fine. Yeah. I think the other thing, um, also depending on how severe the symptoms are uh, before going to um, medical options, as like you, you say, they can further uh, exacerbate constipation in particular, mm -hmm. uh, just doing certain different types of lifestyle changes to see if that can help the symptoms. 
So for a person who has urinary frequency and urgency, I'll tell my patients to actually just go on a voiding schedule, uh, meaning to tr just to put in your mind to go to the bathroom every two or three hours to try and be proactive in, and not getting that, oh, my God, i got to go, and I'm looking for a bathroom, but just to go every couple of hours and try to empty the bladder. Um, sometimes, as, like you described, if the muscle of the bladder is a little bit impaired and it's not doing a good job at pushing out all the urine and just simply just yourself pressing on the bladder can help uh, push more and more of that urine out and everything. And then I think one of the things that a lot of patients will um, purposely stop drinking water and attempt to not have to go to the bathroom more frequently, uh, but that actually can do more harm. It can affect the bowel, make it more difficult to have um, good bowel movements, and then just the flushing out the bladder, especially if you're retaining a little bit, it's going to increase your likelihood of getting uh, infection. So drinking adequate water is definitely an important uh, thing. I know it seems counterintuitive. The more you drink, the more you have to pee, but there's just other uh, good benefits to staying well hydrated. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so especially like in, in our patients of um, the bowel dysfunction, neurogenic bowels, if you don't drink mm -hmm. water, the more constipated you end up in. And usually a lot of um, our patients with um, spinal cord dysfunction, uh, they're on a lot of other medications whose side effects can cause constipation. Mm -hmm. so it's a matter of being, as Paula said, proactive. The, with, now, with, with having a, a proper bowel program, so a lot of, so I, I'm pretty sure, Paula, you might have the same experience when you see patients for the first time, a lot of them do not have any idea what is a bowel program. So when yeah, you see, that's, that's, yeah, that's right? very, that's, yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of misnomers of how often should you go and what, like you said, what does a proper bowel program look like and everything. Yeah, so when we talk about the bowel program, it's not just like the medicines that you take. It's we go over how often you have a bowel movement, what are the techniques or maneuvers that you can, you or your caregivers can apply in order to help facilitate having a bowel movement, what your diet should entail, what the fluid intake should be, do you need to use a suppository or not, do you need to use a stool softener or not. And then there are other, um, you know, other appliances that we can use to help facilitate having a bowel program. For me, um, basic rule of thumb is that, well, I always ask how, how your bowels were before you got sick or before you got injured. And then mm -hmm. we always, yeah, and we always take into consideration, it's easy to say do a bowel program every day, but you have to incorporate it into your lifestyle, into your daily activities. Would it work best if if you do if you sit at the toilet and do the digital stimulation or or do the manual evacuation of your um, feces in the morning or would it be better at night when you're not rushed? Um, do you have if you cannot do the bowel if you have an impairment severe enough that you need help to do the bowel program? Will you have somebody who is reliable enough to do it with you that you can instruct? So these are the things that, that we go over with our patients. That was actually uh, one of the questions I was asked specifically um, uh, was in regards to bowel dysfunction, saying that that has been a, a real life changer for them and that they've been told over and over that what they needed was a bowel management program but was never explained what that looked like. And so I can imagine um, that it's, you know, it's different for everybody. Everybody has different needs and so you can't, you can't say what um, what one should look like for a specific you know, patient unless you see them, but at the same time, I think that you all are correct that, that people, uh, you know, professionals, providers say you need a bowel management program, but that's kind of the end of the conversation. But any, any kind of details you could, you could give in a, a hypothetical situation of what uh, a bowel management program might look like in a day or two days for a patient with a, a neurogenic bowel? Well, I, I think it depends, like what Philip Heinz was saying, I think it depends on what was your bowel function before the the injury occurred. So when you go back and just ask a patient how, how often were you having a bowel movement before you, you got diagnosed, a lot will say it's one um, every other day. And so that's 
what most patients are, 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 are doing currently. And so if that's the case, then, you know, what I try to focus on is just to keep certain things in place to keep them at that current functioning level. So I, I try and prevent things from getting worse. Now, if it is a person who's had uh, traumatic changes in their, their bowel function, um, I focus on more of making sure they're doing certain um, exercises, so enough activities throughout the day to help, help stimulate the bowel. And then I come up with a different regimen, whether it's taking stool softeners, uh, sometimes with Marilax or just other different things to help get on a regular schedule. Um, what I know patients seem to find the most difficult is the timing of everything. And, and that, to be honest, is going to take a lot of trial and error. And so what I mean that the timing of, you know, you take all this stuff and it says it's going to start to work in eight hours, but that means you're, you're at work. And so it's really thinking of the pharmacokinetics of some of the, uh, of the supplements or the medications to use to make it sure your bowel management is occurring at a time that's appropriate for you. And I think the key thing is at a time that you do have the excess amount of time to spend in the bathroom to allow for um, evacuation. Sometimes how do you typically approach bowel management? So, uh, and uh, Paula, to add to that, um, again, it's it's a, a big conversation. When I actually spend a bulk of my time advising um, my patients in the clinic about how to start the bowel program, and I always tell them they have to be patient because this will take some time to take effect. And again, it is a trial and error. Um, one thing I do insist, if like based on my physical examination, if I feel they are backed up, and I get proof that, and in my clinic, um, if I, 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 I have a lot of patients say, but I, I had a, I had a bowel movement this morning, but then they, when I see them in the clinic, their abdomen is distended, and then they're feeling very gassy. So I usually check on X-ray just to be sure. Um, and it's and a lot of my patients have a lot of feces still left over in their colon in spite of having a, a bowel a bowel movement earlier that day, for example. And, and at that point, I would discuss with them. We probably they a bowel cleanup to quote unquote reset the bowels, and then we'll have to inst, you know start again afresh a, a anew with a new bowel program. But the important thing is we need to clean out whatever is there. Um, and and then reinstitute a new bowel program going over you know if you need the, the for example a stool softener you need a laxative um, or sometimes I just change the suppository if you're using a suppository to something that is faster acting. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think um, that's these bowel management programs are. Uh, I think it's it's safe to say that they can be a major issue. Uh, for for most patients with these with these problems, and that it's a can be a hard conversation or a strange conversation to have with their provider, but it's important to have a, an extended conversation with them about it to really understand the particular case that they have and what their options are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and speaking to uh, bladder dysfunction. Um, there's a question here of uh, uh, somebody with neurotonic bladder uh, who currently has a suprapubic catheter uh, for attention, also uh, uses overactive bladder prescription for the overactive problem, mm -hmm. um, but that the, uh, the prescriptions are becoming less effective, even with varying dosages, and that the next step is Botox and check it into the bladder. Um, so from your, Dr. Kabahog in Philippines, from your a professional experience, um, uh, at what point in time do you start considering uh, Botox injections for bladder dysfunction, um, and what are your opinions on its efficacy? Okay, so uh, I would actually, I'm, how do I rephrase this? A lot of my patients, I would consider doing Botox to the bladder um, based on several things. Uh, one is, again, um, if they're not responding to their oral medications, the anticholinergics, the oxybutynin, the ditropans, the ditrol, that's one thing. Another thing is also what are the results of the urodynamic study. 
um, the bladder has basically two bladder dysfunction in terms of having a spastic or overactive bladder has two main components that I look at. Is it the bladder itself that is overactive or is it the sphincter, the gate? If it's the sphincter that's overactive that's preventing uh, the urine from coming out. Now, for me to, cons to me to consider that Botox may be a good option is, number one, they're not responding to their oral, me oral anticholinergic medications or in spite of um, responding to oral anticholinergic medications, they're having side effects that are not acceptable like severe dry mouth, constipation, or it's interfering with their cognition because some of the medicines that we use can interfere with um, thinking um, or their alertness, especially in older patients. And the number two is what does the urodynamic study show me? The, a urodynamic study is, is, is an examination that either a physiatrist can do or a urologist can do in clinic. And what it does is that we put two catheters, one in the bladder, one in the rectum. And aside from measuring how much urine or how much fluid your bladder can actually take, or basically what the bladder capacity is, it tells us um, how much pressure is generated inside the bladder. If it's done in the urology office, um, then some of the urologists would also do a cystoscopy at the same time and then it shows us and then we can tell how thick the bladder wall is. So the main thing why we're so fixated on controlling the bladder is we want to keep the bladder happy. If the pressure in the bladder is so high that you, you, it's one of two things. If the, pleasure, if the pressure in the bladder is so high, you either leak out in your urethra or the urine would backflow up to your kidneys and that is what we're trying to prevent. Now, let's say you had a urodynamic study and then you had a cystoscopy, a video cystoscopy, and they see that the pressures are very high um, and, and, and the bladder capacity is low. Botox would be a good option. Another thing is, for example, I have some patients who, who, for example, are catheterizing every two to three hours. It's either they are, they, and that's not going to be a good quality of life. You can't like go to the bathroom every two to three hours to catheterize. That's not fun for you. That's 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 going to interfere greatly with your quality of life. So, I've had patients who we did the both. Well, I didn't do it personally, but I refer to my urology colleagues who do. After undergoing the Botox, they have less leakage and then they could stretch out their catheterization. So these are the things I would consider uh, when the patient is thinking about getting Botox. Will it improve their quality of life? Will it help protect the bladder? And usually these are, these are the reasons why I would send them for Botox injections. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think your explanation was spot on as the way I approach it also. Um, I'll try, um, a, you know, a handful of different anticholinergics, oxybutyn, detrol, vesicare, and if you're not getting the response or if the patient's having side effects, I have a close um, urologist colleague that I work with that we send our patients to to do the formalized urodynamic testing, and it, the intent is to see if they are a good candidate for Botox. Uh, my patients who have gone on Botox, they have had great responses with it. It is... Um, been a way to help get them off of a lot of their bladder medications, um, uh -huh. and uh -huh. they they report great improvement in their their symptoms and just being able to manage the uh, bladder dysfunction. So I, I I do advocate for or think um, Botox is a good option for those who are a good candidate for it. Uh, this same uh, person who had this question about the Botox uh, mentioned that uh, that they currently have issues with bladder stones um, and that they've had to have surgeries with that uh, since having all of these problems. Do you see, um, and maybe this is more of a, a, a question for a urologist, but um, uh, with these kinds of issues that you uh, see, um, um, bladder issues in particular with uh, TM and NMO and whatnot, uh, do, do you see these kinds of bladder stones or, or kidney stones uh, coming because uh, maybe as a, as a uh, side issue that it can occur with uh, this kind of bladder dysfunction or is that completely a separate kind of issue? So, patients, well, Paula, do you want to answer first because I'm going to uh, run along. <laughs> well, I was just going to say I, um, in all my years of experience, have not seen like an increased incidence of kidney stones or bladder stones 
uh, with patients with neurogenic bladder, um, especially if the stone is starting in the kidney, that there's a little bit of concern of different medications the patients can be on that can increase that likelihood. And also it depends on, to get an analysis of the stone and see what is the mm-hmm. stone, for instance, if the stone is calcium, then there's certain things that you can do to help decrease the um, likelihood of forming um, another stone. Um, I would guess in theory you could get a true bladder stone if the urine was able to sit uh, in the bladder long enough and you had the uh, crystal form, form forming, but I just don't see that routinely in um, our patients. Yeah, um, I agree with Paula. Um there's not per se an increased incidence of bladder stones or kidney stones, but they do happen. Uh, and usually, for example, with bladder stones, it's usually associated with a lot of irritation, either from the catheter or from repeated urinary tract infections. I like to think of it as a vicious cycle, because if you have, you know, increased irritation in the bladder, it you will it increases the risk of forming stones. But then the thing is. If you have a stone, it also irritates the bladder. It also re- leads to, you know, increased urinary tract infections because bacteria can grow in that stone in layman's terms, like a nidus of infection. Uh, so what's important for us is we try to keep the urine sterile. We we institute a an, a, an appropriate bladder program which um, promotes appropriate emptying of the bladder. We don't want your bladder too distended and too irritated. So. So uh, going, I'm gonna I'm gonna be shifting a bit because with the stones. So uh, uh, I usually tend to ask my patients if, for the, especially those who have a lot of um, bladder stones and urinary tract infections, because I in my practice I see that they come hand in hand. We have to take out the stones to help decrease the urinary tract infections. I have to make sure that they also don't get the urinary tract infections. I always ask my patients, do they know what type of bug that that grew in their cultures because certain types of um, bacteria predispose to formation of bladder stones as well, like Proteus, E. coli. So I always ask that. I'm not sure if other practitioners do, but I always keep my my eye out for that because some, and then there's really no good study on this. Perhaps some of our um, of our listeners here have heard of using, let's say, cranberry supplements, D-manos, Hiprex as a, a prophylaxis to prevent urinary tract infections. Um, for some of my patients, depending on what type of bacteria, they could use a cranberry supplement. It usually works well if the bacteria causing the urinary tract infection is E. coli, because that's what cran- the, the the active ingredient in the cranberry supplement does. It prevents your E. coli bacteria from sticking to your bladder wall. The challenge is when you have a neurogenic bladder and when you do the catheterization, it's not just E. coli that's in your urine, it's a whole host of other bugs. So we might have, I mean, I usually have to be creative and, and, and I and my patients have to be creative in trying to figure out the attack, okay, what's the, the best plan um, and how to prevent repeated urinary tract infections. It's uh it's uncanny that you that you went in that direction, uh, Dr. Kabahug. As uh, right before while while you were talking before that, we got a question live from somebody um, uh, asking about that precise thing. Uh, <laughs> been diagnosed with neurogenic bladder and retention issues, which has led to chronic UPIs. Often have symptoms of UPIs, frequency, urgency, burning, and pain, but the culture returns nothing and they feel like they spend their life tasting a UTI. And so what are your feelings about prescribing prophylactics to manage the symptoms of UTIs? Um, uh, so I guess that uh, what you spoke to about cranberry speaks to, to that, but I guess this kind of delves deeper into um, uh, managing uh, maybe prophylactic um, um, antibiotics for things of this nature and uh, uh, any maybe other medications or other things to not only prevent UTIs, um, um, but how much evidence do you do you need in terms of culture to to treat a UTI? So um, to treat a UTI, so it's going to be challenging in patients who have neurogenic bladder, especially if those who catheterize, because if you just if you just get a sam a random culture, it's going to grow. So for me, what's important is when they present to me with symptoms of urinary tract infection. 
and not all patients will present with fever. Some of the patients will present with uh, foul smelling, urine, a change in the color and odor, or for those who have problems with spasms and spasticity, when they have a urinary tract infection, these get worse. If, my, if a patient of mine comes in and thinks it's a UTI and he has these symptoms, I usually order for a urinalysis and I check the components um, of the urinalysis. I check for certain um, like nitrate, leukocyte esterase, and the presence of white blood cells in their urine. Because if you have um, white blood cells in your, this is how I think of it, if you have white blood cells in your urine, that means, and, and a positive leukocyte esterase and nitrites, um, which basically says you have your white blood cells fighting something, then I, I, I treat my patients with um, a general antibiotic until, I, until the cultures come back. And then if the cultures are positive, it will usually tell me what bug is growing and what is the best medication that the bug is sensitive to. Then we change the medication from there. Um, in terms of prophylactic antibiotics, I am not a fan of that, um, especially with the concern for drug resistance. Granted that there are certain patients that will need, that will, you know, that will need prophylactic antibiotics. As a rule, I do not start with that. That's basically my bag in my bag of last resorts. What about you, Paula? No, I, I agree completely. Um, I, I don't use prophylactic antibiotics on a routine basis. You're absolutely correct. There's a small percentage of patients that um, the risk versus benefit, that there's more benefit there for them to be on um, prophylaxis antibiotics. Um, I just really try to focus on going back to hydrating. It's, it's kind of like you were saying, with, especially with E. coli and how it adheres to the walls of the bladder, if a person stays well hydrated, that's going to help um, decrease the adhesions of E. coli onto the bladder wall, along with, I've had great success with using cranberry tabs. Um, I prefer the use of tabs and not actual cranberry cocktail mm -hmm. um, due to the fact that you're going to need to drink tons of the cocktail to get the same amount of cranberries and cranberry tabs, and plus the uh, cocktail it has too much sugar in it, and so then you're introducing a whole another program uh, or problem with having something that's high in sugar. I, I think with the question that Sam was receiving, or has it sounds like the person has the symptoms of a UTI, but their mm -hmm. culture is negative, and so I would just kind of feel that they have the symptoms of a neurogenic bladder. Mm -hmm. um, there is something called interstitial cystitis, which you have the symptoms of urinary frequency and urgency and maybe a little bit of dysuria and it can be a, um, a negative culture and there's different things uh, that the urologist or even the neurologist that they can do to help treat those. It is using a lot of the anticholinergic uh, medications to help decrease on those symptoms that the patient may be having. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit and moving back to the bowel, uh, there's a question that came up. Um, uh, we've talked about, you know, bowel um, management routines and, and other uh, medications to, to, to manage that. Um, but uh, there's a question that uh, bowel is, is basically non, uh, following a non-functional non pattern. And they're currently taking medications and supplements um, and all of those things. Uh, but are there any additional treatment options uh, once you start uh, uh, Deciding or figuring out that the medications and all of the uh, 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 the ways that you can manage the medications back and forth are are not really affecting the the bowel at all. Are there any I guess maybe more invasive or uh, uh, mm -hmm. to to manage that outside of medications and enemas, suppositories, and things of that nature? Yeah. So. My, uh, my usual approach to the bowel program is like a pyramid and like what Paula said earlier, dietary lifestyle modifications, being more active helps. Um, going through the gamut of all of the uh, medications that we use. Um, in some patients, I would do, I would recommend doing transanal irrigation. Uh, a, a short description would be 
you, you put up a catheter and you flush the lower lower parts of your colon. It only goes up to the lower, lower part of your rectum. It will help flush out uh, stool from that part. Um, and this is not something that you can just order over the counter. Um, you have to be evaluated by your physician or your practitioner. Um, and you and your caregiver will have to be educated on the uh, proper use of the, the, the transanal irrigation system because not all patients would be deemed appropriate for this. And then if, for example, you, you are deemed appropriate for it, meaning you, you're able to transfer to a toilet or have access to the toilet and you have somebody to help you out if you, if you can't do it by yourself, um, usually we have to make sure that um, you have a bowel clean-out before the first time you use the system because um, there is a risk for bowel perforation. So that's one of the things that we can potentially do before considering, you know, more a more definitive surgical management. And uh, on that same line, there was a question that came in during the podcast. I uh, kind of speaking of surgical solutions, and I know that you guys aren't surgeons, so I mm -hmm. think we expect you to go into uh, um, huge detail, but. Are there any solutions to restore sphincter anal control, or is it really all bowel management through diet and medications and things of that nature? Specifically talking about um, sphincter control, are there surgical options for that? Um, not at this time. Not not anything that is a hundred percent effective. Uh, there there is this thing called an interstem. Um, it's a neuro a sacral neurostimulator. So basically, yours when for example, when you, ease, when you do electric stimulation to peripheral muscles, you basically do the same thing. Um, uh, but this time, you're not stimulating muscle. You're stimulating the sacral plexus or um, the nerves that are controlling bowel and bladder. Um, uh, it, just in my experience, and I don't know with Paula, it hasn't really been that effective in my patients. And also, the thing is, um, for example, if you do have an interstim, if you do decide to get one after the trial, um, not all of the, inter I mean, the, as far as I know, I don't know if Medtronic has come up with an MRI safe one. The moment you have an interest in place, you can't have an MRI. And, and no, this I, is, I, think that's, yeah. I, I think that is correct. I don't think they're MRI compatible, not yeah. yet. I think I heard one is coming, but I don't think it's out yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, that, I mean, my my take on that is, again, I did not, I, the patients that I've sent for an interest in trials didn't, um, uh, didn't have any uh, a good response. It may work for other patients, but for the patients that I've seen and we've done this, it didn't work that well. And then again, if it did work well, um, there is this concern about MRI compatibility because patients with TM, NMO, SD, ADAM, these are the patients that will need, you know, uh, MRIs regu more regularly than other people. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I haven't had much um, luck with patients who have, I very, very rarely recommend anyone to consider an ESIM, whether, uh, excuse me, uh, a STEM, whether it's for bladder or bowel control. Mm -hmm. um, I usually what I'll send people to is kind of going on lines with the physiatrist is actually go to someone who works in pelvic floor rehab and see mm -hmm. if if they can identify a certain muscle group or a nerve pathway in that area and teach them different type of exercises to see if that can help restore some um, bladder and bowel function and I've had better success with that and at least it's something that's non-invasive and there's just a whole risk of having surgery and having a device implanted into you, I think patients have to really look at that risk, the risk of infections, the complications, you can have more nerve damage done um, and other things and just to get a very small percentage of success uh, from the, the devices and everything. And I think the most important thing, like sometimes we're saying, is that they're not MRI compatible and so if you start having new or worsening symptoms, it's going to be very, very hard to assess those. Uh, symptoms because we're not going to be able to do uh, MRI and that CT scan and especially in the spinal cord is not going to give the detailed information that we need to, to see for a, a new or evolving lesion in the spinal cord. Yeah and then like 
and then going up to like the topmost of the pyramid in terms of bowel management being surgery again that is in the that is like um, the last resort or last step that I take or sometimes even sooner but with surgery I would refer the patient to a surgeon for a it's either you have a colostomy or if or you could have um, a mace procedure done basically it's using your appendix to make a uh, to make a tube or a channel where you can catheterize and, and give the enema that way the appendix is um, connected um, to your colon so that's uh, one thing uh, that you know it's a it's a continence enema basically the surgeon what the surgeon's going to do is going to make a, a tube um, that you can give an enema through so you don't have to give it through the rectum and and for some patients this works well because it helps clean them out and it gives more um, independence and ease of, of doing the bowel program but then again it's it, it's either you do this in us we approach this you know the decision to to, the decision to consider this can either be done in a stepwise manner or it depends on how severe your bowel symptoms are. Uh, there's a question that came in during the conversation to kind of bring us, uh, uh, as, we, as we're talking about surgery now, to bring us back down to the basics. Mm -hmm. uh, regarding the bowel, you mentioned digital stimulation and self-evacuation. What precisely do you mean by that? Okay, so going back to... <laughs> So, Paul, do you want to? I'm afraid I'm going to be very graphic in my description. So. I'll, I'll let you be very graphic with your description. Okay. All right. So, again, going back to the basics, you have a spastic bladder and a flaccid bladder. Spastic bladder, everything is spastic. The bladder wall is spastic. The sphincter is spastic. So, we can do digital stimulation for spastic bladder. Sometimes I do it for the flaccid. So what happens is you take your finger, you put it inside the rectum. Well, not really way up high. It's not like you're, it's not really way up high, but inside the anus and you're going to gently either clockwise or clock, counterclockwise um, uh, finger inside around the anus. So you're going to move your finger in a clockwise or counterclockwise, whatever you're you're comfortable with. And what that does is like is you're stimulating a reflex. The anal uh, rectum, the anal inner rectal wall stretches and it would stimulate contraction of their lower rectal wall to help propel the feces out. So it, it, it will help propel the feces out. So you will have a bowel movement. That's digital stimulation. So we do that for a few minutes five to ten minutes or ten to fifteen minutes, five, well, five to ten minutes basically um, and then once you have a bowel movement you do it again um, in order to make sure that you've completely emptied now to contrast this to compare this with manual evacuation manual evacuation is that you actually put your finger up and try to gently and I may stress gently scoop or remove the feces out. You can only go so far though, you can only just go in the lower rectum in, in order to scoop the feces out. So basically that's the, the, the difference. Digital stimulation, so stimulation is stimulate that inner rectal wall in order to help facilitate the contraction that will propel the poop out. Manual evacuation, you're actually going in and scooping the poop out. Is that clear? I think that's pretty clear. Okay. Uh, uh, it's pretty clear to me. Okay. I guess from from that description, though, are there instances when, like, for example, the the digital stimulation, uh, uh, stimulating the the reflex to, mm -hmm. um, are there circumstances uh, that that you come across with patients where the the reflex is gone and that's really not helpful? Yeah, and and yeah, and that's when you know we do the manual evacuation or some people some people respond to an enema um, or use of enemies or some people this is like these are the people that would try doing a transanal you know the a trial for, for transanal irrigation the peristine system what about you Paula uh, yeah I agree with just everything you're saying uh, I usually when you talk about transanal irrigation you get this weird look so I usually just refer 
patients are using the enemies, the little mini uh, enemas to help mm -hmm. to remove the bowel. Uh, there's a question that came up to, to you, Paula. You mentioned bowel exercises earlier. Are there any um, examples that you have of bowel exercises? I don't because I, I work with a wonderful um, pelvic floor specialist named Dr. Kelly Scott and she has an actual physical therapist who took training uh, that teaches patients on how to do the different exercises in that area. Um, from a bladder standpoint, everybody is familiar with the Kegel exercises, so it's the same concept as um, she's able to do an exam and figure out which muscle is, is kind of like civil scientists are saying is either too spastic or maybe too flaccid. And depending on which one, there's different exercises that the physical therapist you'll work with actually teaches you how to work to help improve uh, that function. Dr. Kabahug, do, do you have anything to add for that in terms of uh, exercises for bowel? Oh, oh no, uh, I agree with Paula with that. Okay. Um, this has been there's been a lot of questions coming in through the podcast, so so keep it going, guys. Um, there's another question that came in. I think this is interesting. As a result of the TM, uh, uh, I have neuropathic pain in my perineal and genital area, and capping leaves my urethra very sore, which discourages capping. Are there any suggestions based on those kinds of issues that you have on, on how to manage that? Yeah. So this is going to be challenging with in terms of neuropathic pain because you see what we can do is we, if you're on any medications for neuropathic pain, we can try that. Um, you can also try like if you're catheterizing perhaps using lidocaine gel around that area so mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt that much. Or if it's really, really painful, uh, these are the patients that we would I would have to discuss. Perhaps it might be better that we could consider a suprapubic tube if we can't uh, if, if if we cannot address the pain. If like in spite of everything that we've tried, medications, lidocaine gel, um, pain is is a big factor that might consider going that route using a suprapubic tube. But basically, start conserve. I like to start conservatively. Lidocaine gel. Um, see if we can start her on any of the neuropathic pain medications, the oral pain medications. Yeah, I agree completely. That's what I'll, I'll do. Um, some type of, like you said, lidocaine uh, topical, or uh, there's different type of compounding creams that you can use topically see if that can help um, with the pain. Otherwise, I think the best bet is just is to consider a super super pubic. Um, the question came in just now. Uh, um, referring uh, re or regarding spastic bladder uh, and acute transverse myelitis. Uh, this is a long-term user of Tofranil to help with nighttime bedwetting. Is that still a good choice in 2015? 15, or are there better drugs for nighttime use? So that kind of leads to a question. Is I think um, a lot of these prescription medications for for bowel and bladder have been around for eons. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of are are these still um, um, you know great drugs to use? Are they the best that we can come by? Or are there new new mechanisms and new medications that are coming out or have more recently come out uh, to help with these issues? Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly about the nighttime bedwetting. I'm assuming she's going to have a spastic neurogenic bladder. So tofranil is is an antidepressant and I think what they're using it they're using the side effect of topramine for urinary retention to address that bedwetting but then the other medications right that are out right now in the market used for neurogenic bladder to specifically address the bladder spasms might be more appropriate but then again I'm not I do not know exactly what type of bladder this patient has so I mean that would not have been I, I again I'm not sure like during that time, uh, how many? I'm not sure how long this patient has been on tofranil, but perhaps it would be good to reassess. And this is what I'm saying: you need to reassess, reevaluate. What type of bladder do you have? Is this the most appropriate medication? This is where the studies come in, the urodynamic studies, and then we can make a more appropriate um, recommendation in terms of medication management. Yeah, I would agree. I wouldn't necessarily negate using something yeah. that's old as meaning that it, it doesn't work. It, it, it can work well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but just depending on, you know, like sometimes things is just neurodynamic testing, what's going on. Maybe a patient might have sensitivity to certain other standard drugs. And so um, sometimes what I call the oldies but goodies still work. And this is mm-hmm. where you, you keep them in your arsenal of, of different things to, to try. That's that's a good thing to keep in mind is that I think a lot of these medications might seem not uh, are older, but like you said, they're old, but they're they they're still being used for a reason because mm-hmm. they do their job well. Um, and to not get bogged down and sometimes the newest thing isn't always the best thing. Um, and then uh, so this should be a, a a quick thing I guess to Paula, how much cranberry supplement do you recommend when somebody is taking one? Um, I usually, I shouldn't say usually, I always recommend for patients to buy Allura. It's a um, supplement you can get, you can buy it online. Um, and so I just, per the, the manufacturer's um, recommendations, I believe it's two tabs twice a day um, of the Allura that the patients can take. Yeah, we we have we have no financial ties to this company, mind you. It's, <laughs> we have no financial. That's a good point. I have, I have no financial ties to the company, but it's it's just it's a, a brand that has a good amount of the cranberry in each tab, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's why I I recommend them. Yeah. Which, I, correct. I have no financial ties <laughs> to the company. <laughs> Um, and we're kind of uh, moving to the end of, of the hour, and there's one uh, one last question I really want to get you guys to weigh in on. Um, when uh, and it comes, it, it pertains to recovery of bladder or bowel function, um, whether it be spontaneous or otherwise. Uh, uh, first of all, can there be spontaneous recovery after a TM event? And then, if there is recovery, uh, uh, does it can it come back in, in uh, phases, or can it be all at once, or um, is it just very much patient-dependent? For me, I've seen it's patient-dependent. So the, to the answer to the question, can it come back, yes, it can come back, I'm not going to give a time frame because that's, as soon as you say a certain length of time and a person gets to it, well, they feel like it's not going to ever come back, but it can be from months to years. Um, of seeing um, the function come back, and it, it can be piecemeal or it can be just all at once. It's, there's there's not a perfect answer to to give to this. It is it is truly patient dependent. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, going back to location, 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 and also how much um, insult has been has your spinal cord um, received. So it's not the same for everyone. Some some people who are lucky enough. Um, regain bowel and bladder function for other people they don't or they they regain partial function or sensation and it is uh, unfortunately it's not it's not the answer I think some people would like to hear but we really cannot predict at this point yeah I think it's uh, fortunately or unfortunately it's still something that you have to uh, have patience with and work closely with your um, providers to, to monitor and, and do your own exercises and uh, uh, do what needs to uh, do what you need to do to the best that you can to to, um, to manage the issues uh, and hope for the best. Right? Yes. Uh, so uh, we're kind of um, moving to the end here. I wanted to give you two a chance to kind of sum up your, your key takeaway points in, in managing a bowel and bladder uh, dysfunction. Um, of course, in the last couple minutes, there have been a, a, a questions about sexual dysfunction, and not any particular questions, just some uh, comments that's pretty typical that, that nobody asked any questions about sexual dysfunction. <laughs> so we might... Uh, <laughs> right? We'll have to weigh in a whole a whole other webinar strictly uh, strictly for sexual dysfunction. Make people ask the question. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, but uh, before we sign off, uh, uh, any last thoughts or um, uh, uh, takeaway points from um, from you all in regards to this topic, uh, Dr. Kabahug? Well, just remember, bladder and bowel dysfunction basically have two main types. 
and depending on the type you have to this is an ongoing process and dialogue with your practitioner in instituting an appropriate bowel and bladder program and in modifying the program and changing it but what's important is that you have this discussion and not just keep on piling on the laxatives or stool softeners so yeah I, I agree have the discussion um, and keep in mind everything can change over time and so what may work today a year to five years on the road may not work and things have to be changed and so um, sometimes keeping a, a diary and you know pretty detailed diary of how active what did you eat and different things that can also be great insight on helping to manage um, bowel and bladder um, function for your, your your provider so if you can bring those to your visits that'll, that'll be helpful um, since nothing was said about sexual dysfunction I'll, I'll give my one little plug um, that I like to say especially towards women um, there's always this concern of having decreased sensation, and so I, I said this at the symposium, and so this is my take-home uh, message. Women, we have to remember we are like slow cookers. It takes a long time for us to get warm up, whereas men are like microwaves. <laughs> so when you're <laughs> when you're engaging in sexual activity with your your spouse or your partner, just to sometimes take time and, and explore different areas that can provide. Um, a sexual uh, stimuli and it, just remember it's going to take time to reach that and everything. So those are my take-home points. Uh, thank you both very much for your time and your expertise today. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, there were a ton of questions who, that came in during the podcast um, and we really appreciate that, uh, that the community is so involved and I think we'll be looking for um, looking forward to uh, another podcast in the future about these issues, more specifically sexual dysfunction issues. Um, so thanks again to the community for your participation and, and for listening in. Thank you to Chigai Pharmaceuticals and Alexian Pharmaceuticals for their support uh, of this podcast series. And thanks to the TMA for, for this platform that we all have to discuss these issues. Uh, uh, thanks again to everybody and hope you have a great week. Mm -hmm.